this podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Tucked back in the east, or is it the south? I don't know. We're back in the land of moonshine with your bruncle and crazy hill people. That sentence may have been a bit redundant. Any of you ever watched that show, Outsiders? It was alright. I got way more invested in it than I thought I would, and was very disappointed to see that Hulu only had two seasons. Justified is another good show based in this lovely state. Kentucky has a rich history of civil war shenanigans, slavery, and executions. The first man put to death in Kentucky was known only as Basinger. A white guy hung for murder sometime in 1780. Their list of condemned men is miles long, and it probably won't be a surprise that the races of these men are about 50-50 black and white. Before 1864, many slaves were executed. Most for murder, quite a few for rape, a handful for arson, and believe it or not, there is even one whose crime is listed as theft. Kentucky still has the death penalty, but hasn't actually executed anyone since 2008. Hanging and electrocution were their primary methods until the 90s when lethal injection was introduced. Only two men in the bluegrass state have met their end with the help of the needle. Not to get too political off the bat, but I find the dichotomy of Kentucky's senators absolutely hilarious. You have Rand Paul, who kicks ass and takes names, and then Mitch McConnell, who can't even answer a question without completely blanking out. Both are Republican. It's a strange world we live in. So grab a mason jar and a racehorse. We're heading to the hills for some capital punishment. I did a pretty deep dive into treason a few episodes ago, but there's a capital crime I haven't talked about yet. Maybe it's specific to the time, because until researching this episode, I didn't even know someone could be executed for it. I intend to do an entire episode on war crimes eventually. It's a fascinating topic. Marcellus Clark, who would later be known by the name Sue Mundy, was born on August 25th, 1844. He enlisted in the Confederate States Army on his 17th birthday. A stark contrast to today's youth, he wanted to go and fight for his country, even if it technically wasn't a country. While fighting for his cause, he was captured in Tennessee and ended up confined at Camp Morton, Indiana. On February 18, 1862, he managed to escape his captors and join back up with his unit in time for the Battle of Chickamauga. I'm going to quickly interject here and suggest a podcast for any of you who may be interested in American history. There's another Utah-based podcast called History That Doesn't Suck. It's wonderful. I took a break simply due to being a true crime-obsessed freak monkey, so I'm not really sure where he's at in the timeline, but I do know he does very in-depth episodes and can probably tell you all about the Battle of Chickamauga. Clark would later be assigned to Morgan's Men, which was a unit headed by Brigadier General John Hunt Morgan. Clark was a captain at this point. In the summer of 1864, he took part in Morgan's last raid through Kentucky. John Morgan died in September of that year, and Clark took this opportunity to form his own guerrilla band. Yep, 
big-ass apes with musical instruments. That's exactly what I mean. Guerrilla warfare is basically the military equivalent of a wrestler picking up a chair and hitting someone over the head with it. All the common rules of war go out the window in favor of raids, ambushes, and sabotage. The main goal is to avoid face-to-face -face confrontations with the enemy. Clark's men raided all over Kentucky, destroying supplies and killing Union soldiers. His shenanigans would greatly embarrass Kentucky's military governor, Major General Stephen G. Burbage. Clark was a force to be reckoned with. He and his men had joined up with William Quantrill's raiders, making him a dangerous enemy of the Union. Late into the night of February 2nd, 1865, Quantrill and Clark's men rode into Lair Station, Kentucky and set fire to the railroad depot, along with some freight cars. Just one week later, the men took four Union soldiers prisoner, killed three others, and destroyed what was left of a wagon train. Clark's reign of terror would come to an end on March 12, 1865, when 50 Union soldiers from the 30th Wisconsin Infantry surrounded a tobacco barn near Brandenburg. Four of these soldiers were wounded during the fight, but they managed to capture Clark. He was shipped off to Louisville to stand trial. The military kept this trial a secret and decided the verdict before Clark had his day in court. On March 14th, military authorities started planning the ensuing execution despite their captor not yet being found guilty of anything. Clark did actually get a chance to defend himself. He spoke confidently, stating that he was a regular Confederate soldier and he had not committed the crimes he'd been accused of. This trial lasted three hours. Clark had no lawyer on his side and no witnesses came to his defense. He was found guilty of guerrilla warfare and sentenced to hang. Marcellus Jerome Clark was executed by hanging on March 15, 1865. During the hours leading up to his execution, Reverend J.J. Talbot visited the young man and told him he'd be meeting his maker that afternoon. Clark asked Talbot to baptize him and also for help in writing letters to his family and friends. His final requests were for his body to be sent to his aunt and his stepmother in Franklin, where he wanted to be buried in his Confederate uniform next to his parents. Before making his way to the gallows, Clark gave one last statement to the large crowd of onlookers. He said, I am a regular Confederate soldier, not a guerrilla. I have served in the army for nearly four years. I fought under General Buckner at Fort Donelson, and I belonged to General Morgan's command when I entered Kentucky. After his body was cut down, a few witnesses cut buttons from his coat to keep his souvenirs. Three men were arrested for fighting over his hat. Clark's last words were, I believe in and die for the Confederate cause. I can't find anything on his last meal. Stale biscuits and dried meat, I'm assuming, if they gave him anything at all. I have my own personal beef with the police due to some shitty situations that have happened in my 28 years on this earth, but despite that, I always remind myself that some of them are forced to investigate some of the most horrific crimes. They're human. They have emotions and are affected by what they do. It's a job that I don't have the stomach for. This next case was so fucked up 
that the Kentucky State Police had to put a detective on it who didn't have kids and could look at everything through a sterile, logical lens, not clouded by emotion. This man, Detective Todd Harwood, would later state that this case would haunt him forever. Detective Harwood made his way to the house at 117 Weldon Way in Warsaw early in the morning of August 23, 2002, where he found the lifeless bodies of six-year-old Cody Marksbury and seven-year-old Shelby Marksbury. They had been stabbed repeatedly, slashed with a knife, and their throats had been cut. Their older sister, 10-year-old Courtney, had also been stabbed several times, but was able to escape to a friend's house and get help. Their mother, Carolyn, had been duct-taped, restrained with a vacuum cord, raped, and stabbed in the chest with such force that the knife broke while still lodged inside her body. She fucking survived. I don't know how, but she pulled through and was able to untie herself before crawling to a neighbor's house and banging her head against the door to get his attention. Courtney had made it out due to some quick thinking. She played dead until their attacker left and then made her way through backyards until she got to a familiar house. This attack was horrific, and the man who committed it was deranged, clearly. Carolyn Marksbury knew this guy. She told one of her neighbors to get out of a relationship with him because he was abusive. I guess that made her a target. On the morning of August 23rd, Marco Chapman showed up at Carolyn's house and told her that he was leaving the state and needed to use her phone. After this, he tied her up, raped her, stabbed her, and then stabbed her three children before robbing the family and fleeing. After Chapman left, Courtney took her little brother's hand and told him she was going to get help. He said, no, don't leave me, but she had to go. She told him, I'll be there in a minute, I'll be back and it was because of her bravery that Courtney and her mom were able to survive. Chapman made his way to West Virginia while Carolyn and Courtney were taken to different hospitals to be treated for their wounds. Carolyn sustained many injuries, including cuts to her neck and trachea, as well as a collapsed lung, but she survived. Courtney had mostly superficial injuries, but was left with deep emotional trauma from witnessing the attack. Chapman didn't stay out on the run for very long. He was apprehended the same day. A lot of the sick bastards I talk about in this podcast try to defend their actions and weasel their way out of the consequences by claiming mental illness or some other bullshit excuse. Marco Chapman was different, though. He was a defense attorney's worst nightmare. He asked for the death penalty and told the judge in his case that he wanted to fire his lawyers. He was willing to plead guilty if it would get him the needle. In a letter to the judge, he said, I am so sorry and remorseful for the crimes I have committed that the pain and guilt have become too much for me to bear. I also want the Marksberries to feel that justice has been served with my death instead of the possibility of me living when their children are dead by my hands. The judge tried to convince Chapman not to give up his right to a trial. He believed that there was sufficient enough evidence of the horrible upbringing Chapman had to persuade a jury to spare his life. Apparently, Chapman's parents were abusive alcoholics. His father would beat him unconscious and sexually abuse him. His mother smacked him in the head with a skillet. Clearly, this is not a positive upbringing. 
Chapman was suicidal as a child and started doing drugs at a very young age. According to a court motion, he had depression, showed symptoms of bipolar disorder, and suffered from flashbacks and hallucinations. One of his attorneys argued that he was not criminally responsible at the time of the murders. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I feel like having the sense to trick someone into letting you use their phone is a sign that your head is clear and you know exactly what the fuck you're doing. It was argued that Chapman wanted to commit suicide and was taking the easiest way out by asking the court to do it for him. His attorneys tried to keep this evil bastard alive, but Chapman himself said that his rough upbringing was not an excuse for the crimes he committed. Mental evaluations would be done that showed Chapman was competent enough to decide what he wanted, and the judge finally agreed to give him the sentence he'd asked for. Catholic bishops in Kentucky took issue with this and wrote a letter to the governor urging him to grant Chapman clemency. They said that Chapman's request and the state's willingness to grant it demeans all of us and makes us, perhaps unwittingly, participants in the suicidal ideations of a man unwilling to take responsibility for his tragic decisions. Gary Sharon, the victim's grandfather, held a different view. He told Chapman's attorneys that he'd like to be put in a room with Chapman and a knife. The Bible says an eye for an eye. He took the lives of two babies. He deserves to die. My sentiments exactly, Mr. Sharon. I ain't even religious, but I can get on board with that for sure. Marco Allen Chapman was executed by lethal injection on November 21st, 2008. Some say he took the coward's way out by asking for the death penalty. Life in prison is harder in some people's eyes. Maybe it is. I've never been to prison, so I don't know. What I do know is that in the end, he admitted to his mistakes and did what he thought he needed to in order to rectify them. Marco Chapman was a fucking monster who killed two innocent kids and brutally scarred their mother and sister. He got what he deserved in the end. His final statement was read aloud by Warden Tom Simpson. It reads in part, I don't know why I did the thing that I did, and I know the hate of me over that night must be overwhelming. But Carolyn and Courtney, you have to know that wasn't who I was or am. I am not a monster even though I did a monstrously evil thing. That is why I give my life willing as well as quickly in hopes that you know how truly sorry I am. I hurt and ache daily for the loss I've created in the Marksberry's family, but I hurt as well. I don't know if I deserve heaven after what I did, but I pray with all my heart that I find some sort of peace and happiness after my last breath. After the statement was read, Chapman looked toward the room where the witnesses of his executions were supposed to be and apologized again. His voice was shaky and he was crying. He seems genuine, but maybe that's just the fear of death finally sinking its claws in. His last meal was a 32-ounce steak, cooked medium-rare, shrimp, salad, and banana cream pie. Carolyn Marksberry declined to comment on the crime for a long time, but after the execution, she told the media, This event brings only one measure of closure. Justice may have been served, but any personal satisfaction will likely be fleeting, for nothing can truly bring my children back to me, except for our memories and the heart-filled bond that only a mother can know. 
Perhaps now, though, not only can our family and community start to heal, but Cody and Shelby can truly rest in peace. My heart hurts for this woman. I hope she's been able to find some semblance of peace. Fate is cruel. I don't think I need to tell you that. Rebecca O'Hearn was a 22-year-old woman working at the Minute Mart in Richmond, Kentucky. She was friendly and greeted her customers with a smile. During a conversation with one of her regular customers, she told him, Just a few more days and I'm out of here and making some real money. The very next day, her dreams would be crushed by a man who was also driven by money, but too fucked up to acquire it legally. Harold McQueen was a troublemaker, to put it lightly. Never violent, but had many convictions for things like burglary and pandering, whatever that is. His father, who was the town drunk, introduced him to alcohol at the age of 10. This is one of those strange situations that I am very familiar with. I was also given alcohol from a very young age and have spent the better part of six years trying to quit. Jumped off the wagon a few times, but I'm back on that motherfucker and have no intentions of drinking again. I'm not saying that his father's failings as a parent justify his later actions, but I do understand where McQueen came from. By 13, he was drinking steadily and blacking out from drinking too much. Soon after this, he fell into the world of drugs and let it consume him. Addiction is a hell of a thing. I made it out in one piece, but not all of us are so lucky. McQueen tried to get his shit together. He made the decision to join the army. Ironically enough, while he was in the army, someone introduced him to heroin. He became addicted very quickly. It didn't take long for his addiction to demand an insane amount of drugs and alcohol. By the late 70s, he was in the throes of addiction. He couldn't hold down a job, his marriage had ended, and he started stealing in order to get his fix. He was so hooked on heroin that he needed to shoot up multiple times a day. I don't have personal experience with that, but I used to listen to the Dopey podcast religiously, so I am intimately familiar with the struggles of heroin addiction. And this was 70s heroin, not the nasty shit they have out in the world today. An old friend of McQueen recalled that they did so much that we got weekly deliveries of the drug at my home. He was able to get off it for a while, but I turned him on again. I feel really bad about that now. After a long day of drinking, smoking weed, and eating pills, McQueen and his half-brother William Burnell and McQueen's girlfriend Linda Rose were out driving around Richmond. Sounds like a typical Friday night, am I right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. My days of being a dumbass are far behind me. Don't drive drunk, kids. It ain't worth it. These upstanding citizens, probably in a haze, decided that they needed to get some money. It's a story we've all heard a million times before. Even in this podcast. McQueen backed his car into the Minute Mart parking lot around 11.30pm on January 7th, 1981. He and Burnell went inside while Linda waited in the car. They went in and ordered the clerk, Rebecca O'Hearn, to empty the safe in the cash register. Criminal logic is astonishing to me sometimes. Rarely do they take the time to think before acting. I have a question for you lovely people who have joined me for today's episode. What do you think carries more time? A robbery charge or a murder charge? Can they fry you for armed robbery? 
McQueen thought it best that he eliminate the only witness to the robbery, the young woman who had complied with his demands with no issue. Rebecca was shot twice with a 22 caliber pistol before Burnell and McQueen stole the surveillance camera and went back outside. Upon their return to the car, McQueen told Linda, I know the bitch is dead. This young woman, with her whole life ahead of her, was killed for a little bit of cash. And that's what he had to say about it. McQueen and Burnell found a pond near the Minute Mart and disposed of the surveillance camera before going their separate ways. Rebecca was found the next day, slumped over behind the counter with her hands over her face. She'd been shot once in the face from less than six inches away and once in the back of the head. That second shot is what killed her, either after she fell or was commanded to kneel on the floor. I don't imagine the cops had any leads as the camera was gone. This was also the 80s, so I'm assuming whatever they had probably looked like it had been filmed with a potato anyway. They caught a lucky break after two people were arrested on unrelated theft charges. The trailer where McQueen and Linda lived was searched, and the murder weapon was discovered along with a bundle of cash and some food stamps from the Minute Mart. Wait, were, were food stamps actually stamps at some point? I'm old as fuck, but I don't ever remember a time they weren't just credited to you on a card. That's crazy. McQueen and Burnell were tried together for capital murder and robbery. Burnell's father got him an attorney, but McQueen was stuck with someone who was appointed by the state. In a perfect world, that wouldn't make a difference, but since this attorney was only paid $1,000 for this case, I don't think he saw much reason to fight for his client. Burnell's lawyer made it clear that all the blame would be placed on McQueen despite both men being present and taking part in the crime. Despite this, no effort was made to sever the trial and make it so the men would face their charges separately. McQueen's lawyer, like many others I've spoken about before, did next to nothing to defend his client. Linda Rose was never charged with anything and ended up testifying against McQueen. I don't think she wanted to, though. She had run off to Arizona and had to be transported back to Kentucky by the cops in order to testify. There was no evidence to show who had actually killed Rebecca, but the prosecution and Burnell both threw the blame on McQueen. What a shitty thing to do to your brother. No change of venue was sought for this case either, despite it being highly publicized. The court-appointed attorney didn't even bother to use McQueen's addiction or the brain damage he'd suffered as a result as mitigating factors to get the death penalty off the table. On the night of the murder, he'd been high on about 150 milligrams of Valium, as well as weed and whiskey. But that wasn't brought up in the defense. This dude gave no fucks. Being intoxicated isn't a valid excuse in my opinion, but any lawyer worth their salt will try to use it anyway. McQueen's family had dealt with his drug problem for many years, but said that he was never violent. He stole a lot, but there wasn't a violent bone in his body. William Burnell walked away with two 28-year prison sentences and was paroled in 1988. McQueen got a death sentence. He spent his time in prison working as a janitor, got off drugs and started to make something out of himself. Before his execution, with the help of the Catholic Conference of Kentucky, McQueen made a video urging kids to stay off drugs. Drugs destroyed everything I ever had, and it destroyed everything I ever wanted. 
Harold McQueen Jr. was executed by electrocution on July 1, 1997. He was the last person to fry in the state of Kentucky before lethal injection came to be. During his final moments, smoke was seen coming from an electrode on his ankle. After eight minutes, he was pronounced dead. A strange fact I found about this execution is that a radio station held a promotional contest where the winner would be a witness to this man's end. It was billed as a totally fried weekend. There's some of that dark humor I always warn you about. The man who won didn't end up witnessing the execution as he was only allowed outside the prison while it took place. The driver of the limo they were riding in was fucking stupid and had brought a bag of weed with him. He was arrested and charged with possession. McQueen's last words were said to his spiritual advisor, I love you, Father. His last meal was cheesecake. Simple but fucking delicious. Your admission to those crimes speaks better than I ever could. The jury's verdict was fair. It was a just verdict. So I agree our journey to justice is about to end here. On March 19, 2010, Kevin Dunlap would be credited with serving 518 days of a 55-year sentence that he got for burglary, tampering with physical evidence, and attempted murder. After those 55 years were up, he'd begin serving the three life sentences he got for arson, kidnapping, and rape. But, how long is one expected to live once they've been given six death sentences? In all my research for this podcast, as well as my own curiosity, I've learned that at a minimum, you get about four years before you have to start looking over your shoulder. Death penalty cases are a drain on taxpayer money. That's another reason why some people oppose capital punishment. It's cheaper to just house the motherfuckers in prison than it is to put them down. I know I've said this before, but uh, bullets are cheap. Maybe not at this current moment, but they're a hell of a lot cheaper than feeding and housing a murderer for the remainder of their life. Most death row inmates drag it out as long as they can with appeals before accepting their fate. But even at that point, the state sometimes waits around instead of putting them to death. It's a confusing system. A lot of the people I've looked into sat on death row for 20 to 30 years before finally meeting their maker. Doesn't really seem like the severity of the crime has any effect on that either. Dunlap's case is another one of those weird ones where he got death sentences despite pleading guilty to what he'd done. Well-deserved death sentences, but he tried to claim he was guilty but mentally ill in hopes that his life would be spared. Kayla Williams was a typical high school senior who had a personality that brightened up a room. She loved to play guitar and make her friends smile. Kayla had a sister, 14-year-old Courtney, who was a kind soul with dreams of becoming a dentist. Their younger brother Ethan was full of energy, like most little boys are. He enjoyed digging for worms and hunting for frogs outside. Ethan had just started kindergarten. at such a fun age. All three of these kids had their entire lives ahead of them, but fate is a cruel bitch. On October 18, 2008, a DirecTV employee entered the Roaring Spring home where Christy Friendsley lived with her three kids. The kids were all at school, but Christy was home. 
The stranger held her at gunpoint, zipped tight her hands and ankles together, and waited in her bedroom for the kids to arrive home. Once they did, a gun was placed against Courtney's head while the man forced all three kids to the floor and zip-tied their hands behind their backs. 17-year-old Kayla was stabbed in the neck and ultimately died of a deep slash wound to her throat. 14-year-old Courtney was stabbed three times in the chest and once in the neck. And little five-year-old Ethan was stabbed 11 times. One of those wounds penetrated his heart. One of his ribs had been completely split open by the serrated steak knife that had been used in the attack. After this senseless assault on three innocent children, Kevin Dunlap made his way back to Christy's bedroom and proceeded to rape her before stabbing her multiple times. After he knew everyone was dead, Dunlap covered Christy's half-naked body with a blanket and set the house on fire to cover his tracks. A mother's love is a strange phenomenon. I've talked about it before. We will do literally anything for our kids. Christy Friendsley knew she needed to survive this attack in order to be there for her children. Dunlap thought he left her dead, but she had fooled him by slowing her breathing and pretending that the wounds were fatal. She was found by someone in the backyard while the crew was taking crime scene photos, laying face up in the pool. She was brutalized and broken, but she was alive. Christy was rushed to the hospital where she underwent surgery to repair the many wounds Dunlap had inflicted. During an x-ray, a broken-off butter knife was found lodged in her neck. Yep, you heard me correctly. A fucking butter knife. Christy survived her attack, but now has to live knowing that a monster took her babies away for no fucking reason. Dunlap was arrested three days after the attacks. During the sentencing hearing, Kayla's father read a statement to the court. In it, he addressed Dunlap directly, calling him a coward and a monster. He asked the judge to stand by the jury's decision to recommend the death penalty. I still find it hard to understand how you can sit motionless, emotionless, and void of reaction as the many photos and accounts of the aftermath of your crimes were described in great detail to this courtroom. It's clearly evident that you have no remorse for your crimes against my family and this society. I only regret I cannot be allowed to determine your punishment on my own and carry it out as your personal executioner. I hate you with every fiber of my being, and I only wish I was able to bring you a fraction of the pain you brought my daughter and her siblings. Kevin Wayne Dunlap still sits on death row in Kentucky. This cowardly motherfucker had the nerve to ask for a new trial in 2022. He has a public defender, of course. Wasn't bad enough to destroy a family, now we're going to waste taxpayer dollars to get out of the punishment for it. The most recent article I can find is from June of 2023. The argument is that Dunlap had ineffective counsel who didn't present any mitigating factors. Apparently Dunlap has had a handful of brain injuries, which didn't mix well with the random combination of medications he was on at the time of the murders. While the defense could have told the jury a sob story about how Dunlap couldn't control himself and it wasn't his fault, I'm gonna call bullshit. He premeditated this murder and tried to cover his tracks. The state of Kentucky hasn't executed anyone in nearly 15 years, but maybe they should. 
Christy Friendsley survived her ordeal and according to a crowdfunding site, has had a rough life since the attack. She was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer in 2018 and ended up having a double mastectomy. That's all I can find on this amazingly strong woman. I hope she's been able to hold on to some kind of happiness. Well, there it is. The moonshine and racehorse state. I find it kind of odd that somewhere so backwoodsy hasn't executed anyone in so many years. When I think red state, I think death penalty. But then again, I live in a red state and we haven't put anyone down since the 90s. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. Share my shit all over the internet and leave a like to show me some support. I ain't after your money, I just like telling fucked up stories. I'm available on Rumble, most podcast apps, and as of a few weeks ago, I can also be found on Odyssey. I refuse to be on YouTube because I'm not going to censor myself. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. Also, if you're interested as of the time of recording, I have one Rumble exclusive video about nitrogen hypoxia executions. Go check that out if you want to watch my anxious ass read an article. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.